Can you be a confident Christian when you encounter financial pressure? When your world collapses? When a relationship is broken? When you have been diagnosed with cancer or with a tumor? Can you be a confident Christian when you struggle with sin? When you feel that you are abandoned by God? When you experience the loss of a loved one who is a believer? Can you be a confident Christian in times like those? Being a confident Christian has nothing at all to do with the circumstances of life, but it has all to do with the certainties of life. The Christian can be sure in an unsure world. And this is not just my opinion. This is the biblical teaching of the Word of God. Last Sunday, we began looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. In these concluding verses, John uses assurance language. He talks about things like know, and you know, and you might know. As you remember, this whole book is about Christian assurance. And particularly when we come to the end of the book, John is talking about Christian certainties, Christian assurances, Christian promises, and Christian guarantees. There's no question about it that God wants his children to travel through life being confident, being a confident Christian. And our text provides certain, uh, five certainties, five certainties that make it possible for the child of God to be a confident Christian. So it doesn't matter if your world collapses. It doesn't matter if you experience broken relationships. It does not matter if you've been diagnosed with cancer or with a tumor. The word of God provides us certainties that will allow us to be confident no matter what the circumstances might be. Last Sunday, we looked at two of these certainties. The certainty that you can know that you possess eternal life. You can die right now with the assurance that you are going to heaven. Not that you hope you're going, not that you think you're going, but that you can know for certain that you have eternal life. John says, I've written these things to you that you may know that, that you might have that intuitive knowledge that you have life everlasting and life that is a quality of life. We also saw that the Christian, the confident Christian, is certain of answered prayer. 
Praise God that he hears prayer favorably and praise God that he answers prayer. And and I can't give you all of the ins and outs of how prayer works, but on the basis of the testimony of God's word, we can have confidence and assurance that our Heavenly Father hears and answers our prayers. John mentions that we are to pray according to his will. And and even when we don't know exactly what his will is, we, we rest assured that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. And so I, as a Christian, can cry out to God day in and day out, knowing that my, my prayers are not just healing, uh, hitting the ceiling of a building, but that my prayers enter into the ears of Almighty God, the one who can do exceeding abundantly above all that we might ask or think. The certainty of knowing that you have eternal life. The certainty of answered prayer. Today, I want us to realize that the confident Christian is certain about victory over sin. Victory over sin. Sometimes we sing that song, Victory in Jesus. Yes, there is victory in Jesus, and we need to understand that in our text, it talks about victory over sin. John has been talking about sin in verse 16 and verse 17. He talks about that situation where you see a brother, a so-called brother, who commits a sin not leading to death. He also talks about a sin that leads to death. That is, that results in a person spending eternity in the lake of fire. John pointed out that all unrighteousness, every form, every shade, every slice of unrighteousness is sin. Now, he focuses in on sin in the life of the one who is born of God. What's the relationship between the Christian, the one who is born of God, and sin? Well, John tells us that when he talks about victory over sin, it means that the Christian does not practice sin. And we need to make sure we hear John. We need to make sure that we understand him when he says that no one, without exception, that no one who is born of God sins. You you hear that, and hopefully you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Hopefully you know yourself well enough that you think or you believe you're born of God. And yet, you wouldn't have the audacity to stand up and say that you don't sin. But John is saying that when he's talking about 
this idea that no one who is born of God sins, he's talking about not practicing sin, not involved in unrepentant and unconfessed sin. And that's not new to us if we've been following the teaching of 1 John. First John chapter 3, first uh, chapter 3, verse 6, John says, No one who abides in God sins. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, John says, No one who is born of God practices sin. Those sound like some perplexing statements. But I think that last translation, practicing sin, is key to what John is saying. That the person who has been born of God, who has experienced the new birth, the the, the child of God, does not keep on practicing sin. Now, this does not mean that a Christian fails to acknowledge their sinfulness. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, John talked about those who say they have no sin. That is, that they're not sinful. John says, if you get up and say that you're not sinful, then you're a liar. The truth is not in you. The person who's a Christian recognizes their sinfulness that they're depraved, that they have a sin nature, even though they're born of God. And what the Christian does, instead of denying their sinfulness, John says that the Christian confesses his sin. That's what we do as believers. When we sin, then we come to God and we confess our sin and we forsake our sin. We don't just buy in this idea that, well, I sin and it's no big deal at all. If you are a genuine believer, the Spirit of God moves you, compels you to come to God and say, God, I have sinned, I have rebelled, I have done that which is unrighteous, and I say the same thing about my sin that you say, and I rest in your assurance that you forgive and you cleanse from all unrighteousness. When we talk about this Christian who has victory over sin, it does not mean that the Christian does not do acts of sin. We do sin. There are times in our life, there are acts of sin in our life. For anyone to stand up as a Christian and to say that we have not sinned, John answers that in chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. The the, the one who says that he has not sinned or she has not sinned has made God a liar. Do you hear that? God says that you and I commit acts of sin. Does God want us to sin? Does God encourage us to sin? No. John says, I'm writing this book to you that you may not sin even once. But if you do, but if you do, and you do, but if you do sin, 
We have an advocate, a paraclete, with God, Jesus Christ. We have one who, who paid the penalty for our sins. And so John has been talking about sin, and he has pointed out to us that the Christian has a proper perspective towards sin. Victory over sin means I don't practice sin. That unrepented sin, unconfessed sin, does not characterize my life as a person. And you need to understand that. There are people in this world who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they are marked, they are characterized, because when they do sin, they might feel sorry, but they don't confess it to God, they don't forsake that sin. Believers, we don't practice sin. We don't continually and repeatedly sin. Well, I'm not saying that you might not sin today. You might have sinned today already. You might be sinning right now, I don't know. And tomorrow you might sin. And the next day you might sin. And the next day after that. But every time you sin, there is a realization that I have put my fist in the face of God, that I have broken his law, and I bow before him, and I confess to him that I have done that which displeases him and dishonors him. And I confess my sin and I forsake my sin, even though I might do that same sin tomorrow, in that same sin the next day, in that same sin the following day. Victory over sin means that the believer is kept by Christ. In an about-face statement, John abruptly says in the middle of verse 18, but he who was born of God, keeps him. And let me just make that real simple, because it sounds complicated, but, but to make it real simple, Jesus keeps us. Jesus keeps us. Can't make it any simpler than that. When John talks about this one who was born of God, He's not talking about the believer there. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And he's reminding us of how Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took upon human flesh. That happened when he was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. When John talks about this one who was born of God here, He's talking about the Lord Jesus. He's talking about how the word became flesh. And he's saying that this one, this word who became flesh, this one who was conceived in the womb of Mary and by the Holy Spirit and born on Christmas Day, this one keeps, protects, guards the believer. 
The, the reason why we have victory over sin is not due to our ability to keep ourselves, but it's due to the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Los Angeles Police Department has a model, and their model is to protect and to serve. I'm sorry, LAPD. Jesus is my protector. Jesus is the one who serves and protects me as a believer. And John is saying that Jesus keeps the child of God. He protects the child of God. This one who is our paraclete, this one who is the propitiation for our sins, now is the one who protects us. And that's good news. I'm glad it's not dependent upon me. Because I fall flat on my face. But Jesus is continually and ongoing keeping me, protecting me. Victory over sin means I don't practice sin. Victory over sin means that Jesus keeps me. Victory over sin means that the evil one does not touch me or harm me. That's what John says at the end of verse 18. And the evil one does not touch this one. The evil one, I hope you know, is the devil. John is not of the mindset that the devil is some imaginary personality or person. John speaks frequently and often about the devil, the evil one. He talked about him in chapter 2. And now he talks about the evil one. And he says that Jesus keeping us prevents the evil one from, as he puts it, from touching us. And the idea is laying hold of us and grabbing hold of us. Getting us and putting us into his hands, his clutches. The, the, the wonderful news is that when God saved you, when God saved you, you were no longer in the hands of Satan. He no longer had hold of your life. He no longer grasped you. That's when God saved you. This evil one, and he is evil. He's the personification of evil. He's the one that Peter says is our adversary. You might not think you have any opponents or any Opposition in the Christian life, but I guarantee you, I don't care how lovable you are, you got one adversary, you got one opponent, and that's the devil. He's our adversary. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that our adversary prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's not a pretty picture. 
Uh, there's one who hates you so much. One whom you used to be in his hand and in his clutch. But, but he hates you so much that you have left him that he prowls about seeking to eat you up. That's his desire for you, is to consume you, to completely eat you up. Peter tells us that. And it's interesting that our Lord, when he was on earth, had a conversation with Peter. And our Lord said, Peter, Satan, the devil, wants to sift you like wheat. And Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you. Peter was dependent upon the Lord praying for him and the Lord keeping him. And here we learn that the evil one, the devil, wants to get his slimy hands on you and to grasp you and hold you once again. And the implication is that we might yield to that if it were not from the fact that Jesus keeps us. Jesus keeps us, and that means that victory over sin includes that the evil one can not grab a hold of our lives again and own us so that he is now our master again. Salvation breaks all of that. Am I saying that you don't have to worry about the evil one? Not at all. As Peter said, resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is real. And the devil wants to grab his slimy hands and get a hold of you, knowing that the, his control over you has been broken by salvation. My friends, the confident Christian is certain about victory over sin and realizes that the evil one cannot touch him at all. A fourth certainty that John mentions is that the confident Christian is certain about being from God. With these sharp staccato words, John begins verse 19 with no connection, he just simply says, we know. He said in verse 18, we know. Now he says in verse 19, we know. And what he's saying is that John knows this truth, this certainty. His readers know this certainty. And what is it that they know? They know that they are from God. They know that they are from God. There used to be a member at Fairview. And she wanted to add a little credibility to her 
ministry. And she would say, basically, that she was from Compton. But she was from Cerritos. I remember when I was living in Santa Clarita, in the church that I was involved in, a young lady who came from the master's college, played basketball. And uh, she came and she visited, and I was talking with her and asked her, where are you from? She says, I'm from West Los Angeles. And as she continued to talk, she told me that she went to Dorsey High School. And I said, Dorsey High School ain't in West Los Angeles? No. I lived in L.A. Dorsey High School was part of the Southern League. It's in the heart of, it ain't West L.A. People try to tell you that they're from different places for different reasons. But here, John is saying, where are you from? He's saying, believers, we're from God. Our, our origin is God. The, the, the source of our existence is God. Uh, if you want to trace and go back to where I'm from, John says that believers are out of God. We're from God. That's where our existence begins. It begins with God. Oh, yes, I came out of my mother's womb. But, but, but John is telling me when I was born again, I came out of the womb of God, so to speak. I'm from God. I'm out of him. My existence is due to him. He's the one who has fathered me. He's the one who has birthed me. We, we know, we are certain that we who are born of God are from God. And so I asked you, where are you from? Don't tell me you're from L.A., don't tell me you're from Louisiana. Where are you from, believer? We, we are from God. And that communicates that he is the one responsible for our existence. He is the one who has birthed us. He's the one that makes it possible for us to live. Now, not everyone is from God. And we need to make that clear. We reject the idea of the fatherhood of God, meaning that God is every person's father in a relational, spiritual sense. We reject that. Everyone is not from God. And John makes that clear in the last part of verse 19. He says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He brings up the evil one again. The one he just mentioned in verse 18. The devil. And now he talks about the world. And when he talks about the world, not the geographical world, not the physical world, but the world system that's headed by Satan, that is made up of unbelievers and has values and beliefs that leave God out. There is such a thing as the world. And that's why John says in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. 
John is saying that the whole world, every part of it, resides and lives and rests in the evil one. And translators try to help us understand that, so they add the word in the power of the evil one. But the picture is that of a mother rocking her baby in her arms in a rocking chair. I remember when we had our first child and we got a rocking chair. Somebody gifted us with a rocking chair. And there would be times that Marlene would be that in that rocking chair with our firstborn son, Wes, rocking him, trying to get him to go to sleep. The world is pictured as Satan's baby. The world lies in the arms of Satan. And you know what he's doing to the world? He's rocking the world to sleep so that they're indifferent to God, so that they hate God. That's the world system. There are people, as John says in this verse, they're, they're, they're either lying in the power of the evil one or they're from God. It's one or the other. My friends, if you're here hearing my voice, it comes down to one or the other. Either you're from God, he's responsible for fathering you, birthing you, or you're lying in the, the, the power, in the grips, in the hands, in the arms of the evil one, the devil. It's one or the other. The child of God, that's a confident Christian, is certain that he or she is from God. Are you certain about that? Or could it be that you're in the lap of the evil one, the devil? The final certainty that I want to share with you in verse number 20 is that the confident Christian is certain about the beneficial coming of Christ. John has painted this picture of the world system made up of unbelievers being in the arms and in the power and under the sway of the evil one. What a terrible picture that is. But, but the good news is, verse 20, and that's why John says, but our and, there's something else that John knows. There's something else that the readers know. There's something else that is true of the confident Christian. The, the confident Christian realize that God has done something about the condition of the world. Because all of us, at one time or the other, before we got saved, we were his baby rocking in his arms. But, but praise God that God did something about our situation. And so when we come to verse 20, John shifts 
from this horrible, ugly picture of the world being rocked to sleep by the evil one to the coming, the beneficial coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ, according to verse 20, is a known historical fact. We are on good footing when we acknowledge and when we believe in the historical coming of Jesus. John says to his readers, we know. We have this intuitive knowledge that Jesus has come. That in time and in history, he came into this world. Now, my friends, I want you to understand that JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, they believe Jesus has come. Mormons believe that Jesus has come. There are even, there were even some in John's day among his readers called the secessionists. They believe that Jesus had come. But, but John doesn't write here, Jesus has come. If you look closely at your Bible, if you look at the Word of God, John says that the Son of God has come. And there's a world of difference between Jesus, so to speak, and the Son of God. JWs will say, yes, we believe there was this man named Jesus, the highest of God creation, that he was born. Mormons would give you basically the same idea. But what John is telling his reader, we believe the Son of God, uh, the one who was the Word in the beginning, who was with God in a face-to-face relationship, and who was God, that this Word became flesh. That's what John is saying. John is saying, the same thing that Paul said in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, that Christ emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave, the one who was equal with God before he came into the world. Mormons, JWs, the people in John's day among the reader, they denied that Jesus was the Son of God. They denied that Jesus was God. But John said, we know, we are certain, we have the assurance, we know the historical fact that the Son of God has come. That the second person of the Trinity left heaven's glory was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit and was born on Christmas Day and lived a perfect life. And they nailed him to the cross and he experienced the worst kind of death a person could experience. And he was buried and he was raised from the dead and he ascended back to heaven. John says, we know, we know he has come. 
It's a historical fact that the Son of God has come. Don't let anyone trick you, deceive you into thinking that Jesus is somebody different than the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. The the coming of Christ led to the giving of a precious gift. It's not just that Jesus has come, but, but when you look again at verse 20, it says, and Jesus has given us understanding. This is what Jesus has done. He didn't just come in time and history, but he did something for the child of God in time of his, in history. And what he did for the child of God in time and history is that he gave that child of God a precious gift. And the precious gift that was given was understanding. The, the ability, the faculty to properly ascertain and comprehend a fact. Do you know that if it wasn't for this precious gift, you and I would never ever see Jesus for who he is and for what he has done? The the Son of God not only has come, but he's given us this precious gift of understanding. And one thing that we learn as we travel through 1 John is how God gives abundantly and graciously to his children. I hope you're not of the opinion that all that Christianity is is the forgiveness of sins, even though that's wonderful. But but John talks about how God has given us love, that we should be called the children of God. God has given us the Holy Spirit, power for Christian living. And and, and that other precious gift, God has given us eternal life. We don't deserve it. We have not earned it. But he has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John says here, God has given us understanding. The ability to understand and comprehend. And why did he give us this gift? In order that we might know him who is true. You know what God holds out for us as Christians? That we can know him. The eternal God. That we can know him. Not simply know about him. Not simply know the facts and the theology. But that we can experience him. That that we can walk with him, and we can talk with him, and we can know that he is with us and we are with him. God gives us this understanding, this wonderful gift, so that we might know him who is true, 
who is real. And John goes on to say that we are in him who is true. Not only does God want us to know him, but due to salvation, we're in him. And that's what I think that phrase means when it says, in Jesus, in his son, Jesus Christ, telling us the means. When you're in Christ, you're in God. And so John wraps it up by saying at the end of verse 20, this is the true God and eternal life. He waves this one before us. And the question is, who is this one? Many believe that it's Jesus. If so, this is one of the clearest, if not the clearest statement in all of the New Testament on the deity of Jesus Christ. If this refers to Jesus Christ, then John is writing this one, Jesus, is the true one, the true God, and his eternal life. But it's possible that this one is not referring to Jesus Christ, but instead to God the Father. And if that's the case, and I do believe that is the case, and that doesn't affect what I believe about Jesus, I believe there are scriptures that clearly teach that Jesus is God. But I think here, John is saying that God the Father is the true God. And this is the third time in a row that he's saying that God is the true one. God is the real one. God is the genuine one. And I think that's why he ends the book by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from these false gods. God the Father is the true God. God the Father is the everlasting God. As it said in Psalm 90, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And so I ask you the question, the appropriate question, are you a confident Christian? Are you a confident Christian? Are you certain that you possess eternal life? That if you were to leave this building and drive down on La Brea and Slauson, and a car blasts into you, and you die? Are you certain that you will go to heaven? Are you certain that you will spend eternity with God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you certain about answered prayer? Are you struggling in your prayer life because you just don't know if God hears favorably and answers your prayer? Are you certain about victory over sin? 
Do, do you understand what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus does for you? That he keeps you. And, and the evil one, the devil, can't harm you. Are you certain about that? If you are, you're not going to take a light view towards sin. You're going to kill sin. You're going to rely upon God's grace and enablement to get rid of sin in your life. Because God has given you victory over sin. Are you certain that you're from God? Don't tell me you're from Inglewood. Don't tell me you're from Compton. Are you from God? Is he the reason for your existence? Is he the source? Has he birthed you? Has he fathered you? Are you certain of the beneficial coming of Jesus? That he has come and he has given the believer understanding in order that the believer can know God, which according to John 17, 3, that's really what eternal life is. Jesus says to know God, to experience him, to, to enjoy him, to, to have that intimate relationship with him. And so I ask you the question, are you a confident Christian? If not, make sure that you grab hold of these five certainties that are in our text because they're designed to make you a confident Christian that no matter what the circumstances of life might bring you, you stand and walk humbly and boldly with your God because of the certainties that he has given us in his word. May God help you and may God help me to be a confident Christian. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. Thank you for your word. And again, would ask that even though your word has been preached, that you would give us understanding. Open up our hearts to respond to what thus saith the Lord. Thank you that in a mist, in the midst of a chaotic world, in the midst of an uncertain world, in the midst of a world that has many ideologies and philosophies, that we as Christians can be confident, not because of who we are, but because of the certainties of your word. May we grab hold of these certainties and may it produce in us confident, assured, persuaded Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.